Hello, and welcome to Workle's Workplace Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Matt Johnson. Matt, as many of you will know, is a musician, he's a member of Jamiroquai, and he's a record producer. And it's the first time that we've had a musician on the uh, podcast. So it'll be fascinating to hear about his journey. And for all of you listening that want to get into the world of music, Matt's advice on how you might do that. So Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Mark. Happy to be here. The first thing I'm sure people want to know is, were you good and natural at music at an early age? I was natural. Um, You know, I started playing piano around the age of five. My dad sort of instigated that. And I took to it straight away. It went really well for the first couple of years until they realized that I wasn't uh, reading the music. I was basically just listening to it and memorizing it. And then they made me start again. Um, and that I lost interest at that point and I sort of put the piano aside. Uh, but then a couple of years later, um, after going for a few instruments that you know I drove my parents crazy with, making horrible sounds, um, I, I got to the trumpet and, and I had a real flair for that. And then, uh, I mean, I, the piano was still there on the side, so I was still messing around with it, always at home. Um, but the trumpet became my focus and I, I joined the National Children's Orchestra uh, and really got into that until I was about 14, maybe teenage years, you know, where I got into rock and roll and then piano obviously it seemed to serve my purpose better. So the, the trumpet sort of drifted away then and I, and I focused on piano from then on. And, and were your parents encouraging of you getting into music? Were your parents musical? Yeah, very encouraging. My dad had a music shop. Um, he had three of them at one point and he, he was, um, he, was uh, he played the organ, you know, the, the two-tiered organ thing and, and clarinet actually as well. And he was, he grew up in the military. He was in a military band as a young man. And then before he got his music shop. So he was very encouraging. Um, all, there's three of us, three brothers, we all played. I was the one that had the sort of flair. So at that point I was his golden boy, you know. So he was really pushing me to try to do the best I could. So when you were at school, you're in the National Youth Orchestra, which is an amazing thing. I mean, so hard to get into. Did you think at that stage that your life and career was going to be in the world of music? Or did you think that you'd have another job and it would be something that you did as an interest on the side? I always felt like music was what I wanted to do. Um, You know, my neighbour, he was the principal of the second violins in the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. So I, you know, he had a nice house and a nice life. So I could see that you could live like that. And obviously with my dad being a musician as well, you know, he, he had the music shop, but he used, also used to go out like maybe three or four nights a week gigging, you know, 
with a singer. So I was very used to seeing that life. Um, so I, yeah, I, and I love music. So I, I naturally gravitated towards it, I guess. And, and what did your, your dad say about you going into the world of music? Was that something he thought would be good? Was he encouraging of that? Yeah, he wanted me to play trumpet. You know, he, he saw me as a classical tr trumpet player in, a, in, a, in an orchestra. And, you know, I probably could have gone that route, I guess, if I'd have focused on that. Um, when I was doing the keyboard, he, wasn't, he, he didn't feel that I had it in me to, to, to be able to make a go of that. So he thought the trumpet was thing. He was slightly disappointed when I when we keyboard, but you know, in the end, obviously, he was happy. And and so, how then did you actually get into a life of music? So you're at school in Bournemouth. You're in the National Youth Orchestra. Um, you're 16. What what happened then? Yeah. Well, as I said to you, I mean, at 16, I was I was a bit of a naughty boy. I was just drifting. I wasn't doing too well at school. Wasn't concentrating. But um. My brother, his, he had a friend who played drums in this band and the keyboard player left and, and the friend said, well, why, why don't you try out for it? And I thought, oh, yeah, why not? You know, so I went to the audition and I got that job. So from age 16, then I was starting to play in little pubs and things. And being from a small town of Bournemouth, you know, people saw me, people in the music community there could see that I was, you know, a talent at a young age. And I just straight away started to get work, you know, and by the time I was 17, 18, 18 years old, you know, my first proper professional gig was two weeks in, in Dubai, in the Jebel Ali golf course, you know, which was for me, it's like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is the life for me. <laughs> and, and Matt, at that stage, were you composing songs? Were you writing as well as I, other people? I was. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was... I don't know how good it was, but I, I was. Me and my brother used to sit around the piano and write songs together a lot. Uh, and I was really into that. I, I was very, always been into the compositional side of things. Um, and I also, I, I worked at my dad's shop uh, for a while and I saved up enough money to get a four track uh, recorder. It was just like a cassette recorder. You could record four tracks. And I was really into that. And I was always overdubbing lots of vocals and making harmonies and things, you know, and playing with that. Yeah. And then tell us about those early days. So, um, you know, there you are at 16, gigging with friends in, in bars, and then you progressed and you're being flown to the Middle East to perform at uh, events. So what does that feel like for a 16 to 18 year olds? What, what, what about it felt exciting and what felt a bit scary? Obviously, the only scary thing is the daunting thing of, am I good enough to be able to do this? You know, the first time when I went off and, and did it, and they, they put me on the spot, like suddenly, because I can sing a little bit, and they'd, they'd be like, oh, well, we need to kill half an hour. We want to take a break, so you just get up there on your own, you know, <laughs> things like that. And then you're like, oh, okay. But it's such a great experience because, obviously, you might be scared for a minute, but it's what you've always sort of dreamed of doing. So then you do it, and it's fantastic. You got through it, and then the next time you can do a bit better, and you learn from, you know, your shortcomings and just improve bit by bit. I mean, as for excitement, obviously, it's just so exciting when you're 18, you know, you've been living with your parents, you've had to do what the teachers tell you to do. Suddenly, you know, you've got this freedom, this liberation, and you're getting paid to be, you know, in another country, which any, anyway is really exciting when you're that age, you know, to go somewhere you've never been and feel like an adult 
you know, living your own life, making your own way. It's a great feeling. And, and that would have been about the late 1980s that you were doing that. Yes, I guess that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what did it sort of feel like then to be in the music world? Was it all uh, sex, drugs and rock and roll? <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't, it, you know, obviously people in music are more of a social bent, let's say, you know, um, when I was doing those gigs, I had really a, like a musical mama and papa because the guy that ran that band, I, st I worked with him for a couple of years, a lot. He did a lot of stuff and he used to play for Paul McCartney uh, and he was in Wings in the 70s and he'd retired. He was a scouser. He'd actually been in the, uh, the Reaper Barn in Hamburg before the Beatles. He had a band there. So he knew all of them. So he had so many great stories and he was a real great character, a real rock and roll character, a good guy. And, and his wife was an amazing singer. So they had this sort of spirit about them, you know, this fearless kind of on the stage spirit that really influenced me. You know, you get up there and you just do your thing, you know. And afterwards, yeah, if you want to have a few beers or whatever, you enjoy yourself, that's great. Um, but the focus was always on the music, really. And, and did you need to do other jobs at the same time or was music filling your entire life? No, I did. I did other jobs. I did things like going around door to door trying to sell double glazing. You know, I was, I was appallingly bad at that. <laughs> trying to convince old ladies to part with money didn't really sit very well with me. I, I had lots of jobs like that that didn't last, you know, but I'd, I'd do bits and bobs. And then gradually the music became more and more until I sort of got to a point where it's like, well, there's not actually that much I can, more I can do in Bournemouth now. I've sort of got, got to a point where okay, I can earn a bit of money. I can just keep doing this or I can try and go to the next level, which when you're a musician means moving to London, basically. You know, I think it probably still does. People, you know, not everyone does, but I decided to make that move and I moved up to London. Um, quite a few of my friends were buskers in Bournemouth because Bournemouth's got such a tourist thing and they were really very funny guys young guys you know very entertaining they used to go out and street bus and they'd make quite good money doing it so when I moved to London I'd, I decided to do that you know I just bought myself a tiny little lamp and I'd get up at like six in the morning get on the train to the, the nearest pedestrian precinct get my spot before anyone else and I'd be there and that's how I paid the rent I'd just be like there from I don't know, seven in the morning till maybe 3 p.m. when I just had enough. Uh, you know, sometimes it was quite miserable, you know. People would spit at you. playing the piano, Matt? Yeah, I had a little keyboard. I had this really super light keyboard that I'd bought and this tiny little amp. And I just used to, you know, lug them on the train. And uh, yeah, that's, that's how I survived. Uh, at that at that point, I hadn't didn't have any work, so I signed on, you know, and I signed on. You know, I was getting a bit of cheeky money on the side with this busking, basically, it was how I could survive. Plus, you know, when you first sign on, you can't get any. Uh, you have to wait about four months before the money actually comes in. I don't know what it's like now, but that's what it was like then. So I did that for a while, and then the government actually had a really good scheme in those days. Which I don't know if they still have. It was called the self-enterprise scheme or something like that, whereby you could work and still get money for about, I think, four or five months or something. And that was actually an amazing scheme for me because it helped me go legit. You know, I, I, that, then I made the transition bit by bit. 
to being able to you know support myself honestly you know full time with music and when you were busking matt did you have a, a pitch that you used to regularly go to yeah there was a few different ones uh i can't remember now there was one in kingston they were all sort of on outskirts places because they they had these sort of quite big pedestrian precincts yet I never did the tube because the tube you had to go and get uh, like a permission or something. It was a bit of a hassle. Whereas these other ones, you just got there first and then you were okay. <laughs> Although it was sometimes quite annoying when the Salvation Army guy would just stand right next to you, you know, when you're playing. It's like, <laughs> come on, give me a chance. <laughs> and can you make a living doing that? If you see a, a busker in London today or Bournemouth or wherever, I, I mean, yeah. is that something you could do? You can make a living doing it, you know. I mean, obviously, you, you, you're never going to be, you know, wealthy, but you can you can survive. You can, you can make enough enough money to live doing that for sure. I think a lot of people do it, and they they're not only doing that; they're doing the busking in interim, you know, dreaming their big dreams. You know, one of the hopefully they're going to do evening gigs, or they want to be a singer songwriter. You know, I see a lot of young kids, you know, the young girls with acoustic guitar out there in London doing it and some of them are really good you know and, and I'm sure they're it's just an interim thing for them rather than sitting at home doing nothing they got out and went busking and tried to earn a few quid you know and uh, I would have thought a great way of getting experience and exposure and learning to feel confident in front of a crowd yeah absolutely because you deal with a lot of situations you know not just musical ones in that you know you're you're exposed because you're in the public there's all sorts of people on the streets, you know, you don't really notice it when you're just walking by, but when you're there all day, all the drunk, you know, there's the, the aggressive drunk guy that might come, you know, and you have to try and deal with him. There's a lot, a lot of different type of people there. So I, I think it's a good life experience actually from that point of view. And as a big musician, you have to learn to be able to deal with things when they don't go well and try to win people over when, you know, when they don't necessarily like you or whatever, you know, in, in, a, in a gig or a situation, your job is to try and win over the crowd, really. And, and was there any point uh, up to you moving to London and your early time in London that you thought, you know what, I, I probably, I, I'm not going to stick with music. I'm, I'm going to do one of these other myriad of jobs that I'm doing to get a bit of money. No, never, not really, no. Like I said, I wasn't money driven anyway. So I, th I think artists and musicians tend to just do what they do anyway. Money is almost a byproduct. They're driven to do what they do because they have a passion for it. And I think if, you, if you're not coming from that standpoint, I think you'll have a hard time in music because there's a lot of other things that you probably should pick above music as a way of making money. You know, if you're just, if you're mostly interested in making money, I don't recommend music. I recommend music if you just love music and you've got a passion and you're driven to do it, then never give up and just do it. Just do it. So, so on that note, you're, you're now in London, you're busking. The government's yeah. got a scheme to help you go full time. What, what happens next? Um, well, uh, gradually, I mean, it took quite a while to establish myself in London. You know, it's such a big, anonymous city. It's really hard to make contacts, but eventually after a year or so, I met someone, he was a sax player, I can't remember how I met him. I think actually first I, I did a, I answered a ad in The Loot, that it was a magazine they had in those days that had personals, you know, and one of, it was a singer, 
looking for a keyboard player to do some gigs. So I hooked up with her and we did a couple of gigs together. She wasn't really a professional, you know, but she was trying, a young girl trying, and um, like me. Uh, and there was a sax player happened to turn up at one of them and he was a really a get up and go kind of guy. And he, his wife was a really good singer. And he put me into work with his wife and suddenly I had a couple of uh, gigs a week in a restaurant in Knightsbridge, just playing with her, a duo. And that blossomed, you know, she brought her friends to the show a lot. They were all singers, they were all into it. And suddenly I was working four or five nights a week, you know, doing all these duo gigs, which was just an amazing grounding for me because they all wanted to do different things. They all wanted to do their songs. So I had to learn all their songs. So I ended up learning this massive repertoire of songs. And then different singers wanted to do them in different keys, you know, because their voice couldn't cope with the original key. So then I had to learn to be able to transpose into different keys on the spot. And, you know, I just can't tell you how, how good a grounding that was really to, to be able to flip your mind like that. You know, it was, it was amazing training for me for the future. And, and I mean, obviously the fact you had a, a natural ear for it made it slightly easier yeah. than somebody who'd worked harder to learn it by rote. That's true. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who's not particularly technical and there's a lot of holes in my knowledge, you know, in terms of theory, but I've, I'm very natural, you know, and I can hear something and I can pick it out, you know, and that's, that's my skill, I guess. So you joined Jamiroquai in 2002. Yeah. So, so were the years in between filled with you uh, sort of, finding all of these opportunities, working with lots of different people. Right. I mean, yes, it, like I say, I, I got to the point where I was gigging all the time and I was known as the guy to book if you were a singer, you know, and you, you were doing a covers gig, doing a lot of that stuff. And then I started to do some nights. I did this night in a place called Camden, in, in Camden, in a place called WKD. And it was like a three-piece band and we built it up and it became a real thing. It was like a, a, a very hip place to hang out on a Sunday night, you know. We had all the cool black kids come down, the great soul singers and stuff. And it was, a, it was an amazing gig. And through that, I started to get to know a lot of really good musicians who would come down and sit in. A lot of them were the ones that were playing with the big artists of the time. So they started to get to know me. Uh, and I also during that time, I struck up a partnership with a guy who came to that, that thing. He saw me there and, and he was a, another kind of guy with a, a lot of get up and go. We started making some dance music together and he would go out and sell it. And we would, so we'd, we'd make a dance tune and sometimes we'd make four or five grand, you know, sometimes 10 grand advances we'd get from these things. So we started working like that as a little production team. We never had any massive success, but we had things happen. You know, there was things happening. It was sort of going up and, you know, we had a little tune in the charts, you know, sort of lower echelons of the charts like that. Uh, but then, yeah, through all, all this uh, exposure to people, that's how I came to be recommended for the, for the audition for Jamiroquai. And, and so tell me about that. How was the audition? It must seem an, an odd thing to go to an audition. I mean, your first one being when you were age 10 with the National Youth Orchestra. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. I haven't done that many auditions in my life, actually. It's funny, but because a lot of things have just happened through word of mouth. But 
That one, uh, yeah, they, it, was a, it, it happened at a very strange time, actually. I was going through a bit of a difficult time in my personal life. I'd split up with my ex, and we had a, quite a young child together, uh, one and a half years old. And I was actually at a bit of a low point. I was living in a you know, not great part of London, in a quite bad flat. And, you know, and I was, I, it was the first time in my, in my career that I was starting to think, oh, maybe I, I'm going to have to do something you know, else here there wasn't much happening um and then the drummer in the band called me up and said oh do you want to try out for this gig and at first i was like well i don't know if i do because you know i don't know if i can go around the world i've got a young baby and all this so i was actually a bit reluctant to to to, to do it and he was like don't worry i understand i've got a young kid myself you know blah 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 we're not always out you know talk me into coming to the audition in a way and and then uh, so i decided to do it and they sent me about four songs to learn. So I learned those songs. And I also learned quite a few other songs as well, just in case. Uh, and I tried to learn them very thoroughly, you know, so I really knew the parts, not just playing, I could play along, but I could actually play what they were gonna play. And then, yeah, I went along to the audition uh, and uh, they had two days worth of auditions. Uh, but I remember getting there quite early in the morning. Jay was the, the singer was really sort of quite dour faced when I saw him, <laughs> not particularly friendly. I was like, oh, what's this going to be like? But then when I started playing, he suddenly jumped to life and was really animated. And I could tell he, he enjoyed my playing, you know. And they basically, he just pointed me, play a solo, you know, so I had to just go for it. And I, and I just really let rip, you know, and went for it and, and I got the job. Fantastic. And so, and so tell us what life has been like then, uh, doing that, being part of, a, uh, obviously, a, a high-profile group. Yeah, it's been fantastic. It's been, it's been a real blessing. I mean, I've been around the world. I'd already travelled quite a bit before doing Jamiroquai, so I'd, I'd, I'd had lots of gigs abroad, but obviously not on such a massive level. And it was just very exciting to go around the world, you know, be really respected by people treated very well you know because musicians get used to not being treated that well you know sometimes when you're playing the wedding and you're asked oh you should go through the kitchen you know uh so it was lovely to be treated so nicely and to have so many opportunities other things have come from the back of it and i've been able to you know compose and and be involved in records that people all around the world that's one of the things I love the most about it, knowing that I've written some songs that someone in, you know, a very long way away, Venezuela, wherever, has been listening to my song that I did, you know, that's, that's an incredible feeling. And uh, you released your own solo album beginning of this year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so how was that process? What was it like working on your own and, and uh, producing, publishing something on your own? Yeah, it was enjoyable. I, I hadn't sort of thought of doing it for a, a long, long time. A lot of my friends had done things like that, and I, I never really particularly wanted to for some reason. But then uh, I started to have a few ideas last year before the lockdown happened, you know, sort of the end of the year. And I, I think I did a gig with a friend of mine who's a bass player, a very good bass player, and he has a studio. And he asked me to do this show, so I did it for him. And, and I said, oh, instead of paying me, just can I come and use your studio and you play bass for me for a couple of days? So he did that. And, um, and I persuaded my, well, I didn't 
persuaded me he came straight away the drummer in Jamiroquai same guy that got me the gig he came and played drums for me um, so we did a couple of days and we really enjoyed it and had some nice tunes and then you know this whole thing with the coronavirus happened and lockdown and it became for me a little outlet really I suppose because I what I would do is I've got young kids you know so I get up at six in the morning just spend like an hour and a half just coffee and straight away an hour and a half being creative in the studio and that was really I found that very productive to get up really early with a clear head like that um uh, and yeah it, so it, it it came like that bits and bobs I got my wife to sing on it so it's, it's a real homespun affair she's not a professional singer but she's got a great voice and then I just dragged some people in. I got like a bass player from America. I just sent him off the parts. He sent them back for me. You know, various other musicians sent their contributions. You know, I, I might sit, play what I wanted them to play. They replaced it with the real thing. Yeah, it's been, it's been great. It's been really gratifying. And I wanted to spend a lot of time and make it, even though I didn't have the budget that a Jamiroquai record has. You know, I, I was trying to make the same sort of quality record with zero budget you know which was a good challenge in it and and, and i'm happy with how it came out and and will you do more of that do you think that in your going forward that will be something you want to do yeah i might do i sort of got the bug for it a little bit now so <laughs> i feel like because it came out so good i feel like oh yeah i quite you know i feel challenged you know that i can i repeat that somehow and but i guess it will you know it, it's going to be at the end of the day, I'm running a business like everyone. I have to pay my mortgage and survive. So I'm led by what are the most fruitful ventures, you know. So if, if probably the next thing we'll do is make a Jamiroquai album, hopefully. That's what I'm hoping we'll be doing soon. And, and how's the COVID affected you? Obviously, you can't go out to perform. So yeah. it's been really great that you could use your time productively in the way that you've said. Yeah. But, I mean, generally, how is it for, for musicians and artists at the moment? It's really, really tough for musicians, you know. I think I'm one of the very lucky ones because I've done a lot of writing over the years. I've got a buffer zone of royalties. But I think as a lot of musicians that rely on live music, it's just so, so tough for them, you know. And I, and I do feel they've been a bit ignored, you know, a little bit thrown away. I think a lot of them are feeling a little bit thrown away at the moment. And how do you think it will, will end then, Matt? What, what does the future look like for music? Well, I mean, I think people are always going to want to come see live music. You know, I, I, I don't think that, I think that will come back. Obviously, we have to get this thing under control first. But I certainly see a future for that. I, I think in some ways, there might be some positive aspects in that maybe parts of the live music thing have become overblown in a way you know it was really expensive to get a ticket for a weekend you know on a festival and stuff and i i think maybe a lot of those festivals aren't going to survive but new festivals will come up and they'll probably be going back to how it was 30 years ago where it was a lot more basic and maybe the price will be cheaper and i don't know you know there will be unknown side effects i think we no one can see there's always good things to come out of it. I'm hoping also the other good thing that might come out of it is that um, the streaming platforms will start being a bit more fair to artists. You know, even the government's looking into that now. Um, 
and we're currently in a situation where we, we're back in the 60s where they were ripping off artists they're doing it again now because the law hasn't caught up with the digital age you know it's 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 been done by stealth really you know because of this new thing of streaming all the all the rules have been broken and, uh, and i think it's now time for everyone to start thinking about a fair deal so that we can still have our content because we all want our content we all want music we want to watch films you know all these things people have to to make a living out of them somehow so yeah. they've got to re they've got to rewrite the rule boy it can't go back how it was because you know you can't go back that's and streaming is a great thing if it's if it's divvied up a bit more fairly i think and and so given those challenges, Matt, of uh, obviously coronavirus, what's happening with the digital platforms, what would your advice be to somebody now who's uh, 16 and living in Bournemouth who wants to go into the music industry? Well, as I say, I do think it will come back live. So I don't think people should be deterred because I think people are always going to go and want to see live music, I believe. So I do think that will come back. But also, in the meantime, there's so many ways of making money out of music, you know. I mean, I myself, I, I diversify. You know, at the moment I've got my YouTube channel. I'm, do, I'm, I'm putting my energy into that at the moment because I can't go and do gigs. There's nothing else happening. So, I, okay, let's do the YouTube. And that's going well. It's going up. I'm starting to make some money out of it. So there's always opportunities. You know, there's so many different opportunities. You can, be a, you can, be a, uh, you can write soundtracks. You can write library music. You know, this people need content all the time. So, you know, even the business that's doing their little website, they need some music in the background. You know, people need music. Even my daughter, my daughter's starting to sing, and she was telling me that she she gets these uh, backing tracks. You know, that kids make. They they charge like a hundred quid, and then you can have the backing track, and then she can write a song on it, and it's her song. So that's a great thing as a young kid. You can make a, if you can make a cool selling backing track, you can sell it. You've got the chance of selling it. You, know, you don't need to make a fortune. You have to start small, you know, and you just try to get a little bit of money and build on that bit by bit. Don't, don't try to get to the moon immediately. I think that's, that's my main advice, you know, and I see a lot of people, obviously we live in a world now where we're used to seeing, um, X Factor and all these things, you know, and the dream, you know, where suddenly you're no one's next minute you're a superstar. But I think that's quite an unhealthy dream personally. And actually the journey is the most fun bit. So don't try to get there immediately. Just start, just start and then see where it takes you. And looking back, is there anything you'd do differently? If you could talk to your younger self right now, Mm. What advice might you give them? I probably would have practiced more <laughs> when I was younger. Because I, I think, you know, I, I practiced. It's not that I was lazy particularly, but I didn't, I didn't look. I, I wish I'd looked earlier like I look now and tried to think, okay, how can I get better at this? I used to find a stumbling block and I go, oh, well, I can't do that. So I'd just stay at where I was when I was young for quite a long time. Whereas now you have to realize that there's all, you can just push that thing you can't do. You will be able to do it. You just got to keep trying, you know. Now I know that, but I wish I'd known that at 18. If I'd known that at 18, I'd be, you know, I'd be a better musician than I am. You know, I'm happy with my playing. It's, I'm not 
it's not a problem but yeah that would be my advice just keep pushing and now we're, we're in a great time where you can go on youtube and you can find so many people that can give you information for free you know that's it's just such a great resource for musicians you can find it. it doesn't matter what your instrument in there's going to be some guy on there that can give you some really handy info but just spend the time play as much as you possibly can try to learn new things and, and matt talking to you it seems to me that you're you're very happy you're very happy with your life choices a life in music which is your passion and i know you've taken the the workplace happiness test um so uh, how did you score out of the hundred well i got yeah i, I scored 97 percent so it's pretty decent you know that, well <laughs> that, that is ridiculously happy I am very happy. I feel really blessed to, to have been able to do what I do and still being able to do it now. I just feel incredibly lucky, you know. So every day work for me is like a blessing. I, I'm not happy when I'm not working, you know, because I just want to work. And is there any part of your music life that feels more tedious than another? Um I mean, do you like travelling or does the travelling bit kind of frustrate you? I like it. I do like travelling. Yeah. I mean, maybe sometimes when it's, there's, there's too much of it. Uh, I think with all these, I, why I'm really happy is I've got a good balance. You know, I go on to do a world tour, which is really exciting. It's true. By the end of that tour, you've really had enough of being on planes and stuff and you, you're missing your family and you you know it all gets a bit too much but luckily then i go home and i record and i write and i you know i have that cycle in my life that's how my life's been probably that touring might stop you know and i'll be more just doing this sort of thing in the future which is equally cool because i've done it all already anyway so great yeah. great and and a couple of um quick questions to to finish matt um one seems particularly appropriate to you what piece of music, when you hear it, makes you feel happiest? <laughs> um, uh, it's so difficult. There's so many things I love. But there's a particular tune by an artist called Rene and Angela, and the song's called Secret Rendezvous. And that's my party song. You know, I just like to put it on. It just makes me want to jump up and down. <laughs> so... I, I love these things that are just so joyful, you know, and they're just so full of energy and happy vibes that they infect everyone around them. You know, I, I love that about music. And it's, I mean, it's so wonderful that, as you were saying earlier, your job allows you to have that impact on so many people around the world, you know, to listen to your songs, to listen to your music, you to help people be happier or more reflective or, you know, whatever you choose to do with your music. It's an amazing thing to be able to do, Matt. Yeah, I, I, that, that is a big thing for me, actually, to feel that, you know, even a tiny little difference you might make in something, you know, if you just cheer someone up a tiny bit, it's great, isn't it? You know, and that's what I love about when you perform live in front of a lot of people, because people give you their energy. You give out your energy and then they give it back to you. And it bounces back and forth until it becomes this sort of amazing shamanistic kind of experience. And it's very euphoric. And, and Matt, my last question is, um, if you were to nominate somebody to take the workplace happiness test to discover how happy they were in their working life um, and to think about how they might develop that, 
who would you pick? What, you mean just anyone in the world? Anybody. That'd be really cheeky. I'd like to see what Boris Johnson thinks right now. (laughs) You're not the first person to say that. I think for him to reflect on whether he's happy or not would be um, uh, be an interesting thing. It certainly would. It would. So, so Matt, on on that note, can I just thank you very much for uh, being on the Workplace Happiness podcast, for, for sharing your quite incredible journey from growing up in Bournemouth and being in the National Youth Orchestra to joining a local band to uh, busking on the streets of London to joining a world-famous band and touring internationally uh, to writing your own music now and being a music producer. It will be an inspiration to many people that have listened. It's an inspiration to me. Thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.